Okay, um, so this is uh, my mobile phone. How would you describe it? Once again, as Rick said earlier, this isn't a rhetorical question. You can shout it out. How would you describe this phone? Black. It's black. Okay, anything else? Could be a distraction. I'm talking about physical descriptions at the moment, but yes, it might dis- distract us. It's black. What shape is it? What shape? It's got a camera. What shape? Rectangular. Anything else you want to comment about it? Tiny. Oh, shiny. How big's your phone? Shiny. Okay. Right. If I put it in my pocket now, what's that phone like? If you're going to describe it, how would you describe it? You can't. You can't see it. How? What is? Was it? It's black. It's rectangular. It's shiny. Just because it's in my pocket, has it changed? Now, the same thing that when when you see it. It's the same as when you see it, as when you don't see it. If something's true when you see it, it remains true, now, even when you don't see it. And um, in our morning series, we've been working through Genesis. We're taking something of a break. Uh, over this Advent period, we're going to be looking at some stuff in Isaiah. But through this morning series, as we've gone through Genesis, we've been looking at the life of Abraham, and we've been considering what that shows to us about God, what that reveals about God. And these last couple of weeks, there's been this repeated refrain of God's revelation, of God saying, I am God, and I want you so that I can do so much good to you. And sometimes that's easy to see. It's there in front of us. We see it other times. That truth seems to be obscured. We question God's power. We question his affection towards us. And perhaps this morning you see that truth clearly. Perhaps you see it dimly. Perhaps it's become completely obscured. But what is true remains true. Whether at that point in time we see it or not. And even when it feels like the world is closing in on us, God still declares, I am God. And I want you so I can do so much good to you. Our passage this morning in Isaiah 7, it occurs during this period of great trial, of great distress and affliction. And yet into that situation, God speaks. He makes the same declaration. So however you're feeling this morning, now let's hear the words of Isaiah 7, this invitation to see God's saving help and to see his saving heart. So do have your Bibles open at Isaiah chapter 7. And we're going to begin as we see the Lord saving help. Have a look at verses 1 and 2. When Ahaz, son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, was king of Judah, King Rezin of Aram and Pekah, son of Remaliah, king of Israel, marched up to fight against Jerusalem, but they could not overpower it. Now the house of David was told, Aram has allied itself with Ephraim. So the hearts of Ahaz and his people were shaken as the trees of the forest are shaken by the wind. Now in the period of about 735 BC, uh, the king at the time was this guy called Ahaz. And for some time there's been this ongoing threat. So Aram or or Syria uh, in an alliance with Israel, also known as Ephraim, And 
this ongoing threat is suddenly met with this news of this new development. So that house of Aram has allied itself with Ephraim, or as you may see in your footnotes, set up camp. Set up camp in Ephraim. And the same term is used of the locust that would rest in the land. See, the nation is coming together. There's this sort of increasing mustering of forces. And as, as Ahaz, as the people see this, they become shaken. Like trees shaken in the wind, there's this overwhelming sense of fear that they are experiencing. This present threat, this ever-present threat that they've been experiencing, suddenly there's been this great intensity. Maybe that's something you relate to. Even this last week. So over the last two years, we've heard this constant message, COVID is this ever-present threat. And this last week, new variant. Suddenly it feels like there's, there's a new, there's a greater threat. That's the way it's been presented. Maybe that news shakes you. Or maybe it's something else in life. Something that has been brewing for a long time. And you've kind of kept it in check, but you know that it's always been there. And then all of a sudden, it seems to have erupted. There are many things that can shake us, many things that would seek to instill in us this fear where we feel shaken like those trees blown about in the wind. So let's hear the Lord's words to Ahaz. Picking up at verse 3, The Lord said to Isaiah, Go out, you and your servant, Shehazashab, to meet Ahaz at the end of the aqueduct of the upper pool on the road to the launderer's field. Say to him, be careful, keep calm, don't be afraid. Don't lose heart because of these two smoldering stubs of firewood, because of the fierce anger of Rezin and Aram, and of the son of Remaliah. Aram, Ephraim, and Remaliah's son have plotted your ruin, saying, let us invade Judah. Let us tear it apart and divide it among ourselves and make the son of Tabiel king over it. So the word of the Lord comes, he sends the prophet Isaiah to Ahaz, and he's to take his son, Shear Jashub, which means a remnant will return. I suppose there's some vagueness in this name here. Is this a positive thing? Is it a negative thing? I mean, it depends where you put the emphasis. A remnant will return. This is not the end. Now, these kings whose plan is to wipe you out, to put someone else on the throne... It's not going to succeed because a remnant will return. Put the emphasis in a different place. A remnant will return. There's only going to be a few left. Kind of how this goes is dependent upon Ahaz's response. And so they go out, they meet Ahaz uh, by the end of the aqueduct. Ahaz is an astute guy. Now he's out there, he's making plans. If the city of Jerusalem is going to be under siege, you need to make sure that you've got a water supply coming into the city. See, he's out there at this point in time. This is in the middle of a crisis management meeting. And in the middle of that meeting, Isaiah and his son turns up. And they speak these words. These are the words of the Lord to Ahaz. Verse 4. Be careful. Keep calm. Don't be afraid. Be careful, keep calm, don't be afraid. Now, when we panic, we make foolish decisions. 
Many years ago, I was on a bike ride with my cousin. It's probably about 14 or 15. He was about 10 or 11. And we were riding through the woods, and we were coming up to this blind summit. I'm a bit further ahead. As I come up to this blind summit and see there's a steep ravine that's taking us down, and there's a road much further down. So I slow down, and I start navigating this. I'm about halfway down when I hear this screaming from behind me, and my cousin suddenly shoots past. Now, he hasn't slowed down. He's just shot over that blind summit. And in his panic, he's forgotten that he has brakes on his bike. So he's he's just screaming uh, and sort of waggling the handlebars like this. This is his plan. I mean, fortunately, that causes him to fall off the bike. The bracken brakes is falling. He doesn't end up in the road. But he had brakes on his bike. In his moment of panic, he forgot what was there. The brakes would have slowed him down. In those moments of panic, we forget, we make foolish decisions. And in times of fear, we can forget about the Lord. We enter into this crisis management mode. I need to fix this. What needs to be done? And when we forget the Lord, we make foolish, dangerous, even destructive decisions. The Lord says, be careful, keep calm, and don't be afraid. Up to this point, the voices that have loomed large have been the threatening voices. But now the Lord declares, verse 7, this is what the sovereign Lord says. It will not take place. It will not happen. For the head of Aram is Damascus. The head of Damascus is only risen. Within 65 years, Ephraim will be too shattered to be a people. The head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is only Remaliah's son. If you do not stand firm in your faith, you will not stand at all. And the Lord declares to Ahaz, these are mortal threats. They are just mortal threats. This power of Aram that you are fearing Who's behind it? Well, you know, the capital's Damascus. And, and behind that, it's, it's only resin. Well, what about Ephraim? That power that you're afraid of? It's only Remaliah's son. Doesn't even get a name. It's just, you know, that guy. Remaliah's son. These are mortal threats. They're nothing to be feared about. And then verse 8, within 65 years... Ephraim will be too shattered to be a people. That threat that seems to loom so large, that seems so definite, is finite. Within 65 years, you won't even consider it a threat. The Lord says to Ahaz, you must stand firm in your faith. Don't be consumed by this, because these are mortal, these are finite threats that you are facing. Rather, look to the immortal and to the infinite God. So what are some of the challenges that you you are facing today? As you come here this morning, what are those threats that loom large in your life? And that may be to do with health, family, relationships, maybe work. 
And the voice of fear would seek to enslave you in that, that all your energy, all your time, all your focus is driven in to fixing that thing. And then you begin to excuse your behavior. Because no one else knows what you're going through. No one else knows how big an issue this is. And you start making foolish and ungodly decisions. Because the only thing that matters is that I fix this thing at all costs. Because your vision has become so consumed with this issue, with this trial, with this threat. And the Lord says to you, it's mortal. It's finite. Don't be afraid. Don't panic. Don't be consumed by it. Don't let your vision be consumed by these mortal and by these finite threats. Now look to the Lord, the immortal, the infinite God, the God who wants to do so much good to you. Do you believe that? Maybe we struggle. Maybe you're struggling today, and if not today, no, at some other point. And when we struggle to, to believe that, when we struggle to see it, well then, then let's look at the Lord's heart. As we look at verse 10, and we see the Lord's saving heart. Verse 10, again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz. Ask the Lord your God for a sign whether in the deepest depths or in the highest heights. The Lord speaks here directly to Ahaz. He's speaking through Isaiah, but notice the way that it is phrased. The Lord spoke to Ahaz. The Lord is speaking to Ahaz. Ask the Lord your God. The Lord is speaking to Ahaz. The Lord your God. Not some distant, not some disinterested deity. Ahaz, I am for you. I want you to listen to what I am saying. I want you, I want to do so much good to you. What do you need? What is this sign that you need to assure you? Now, earlier this week, I was uh, coming back from London. I was on the train or at Stevenage and they made some changes with the train. So a train that was heading south was now going to be the train to Peterborough to be heading north. And as I got on this train, a conductor is trying to explain this to an elderly gentleman who didn't speak much English, who was now on the wrong train. He was wanting to go south. And this guy wouldn't move. And the station manager had come onto the train and patiently was seeking to explain to this gentleman, you need to come off this train. This is not going where you think it's going. And still, he wouldn't move. And you could kind of understand. He didn't really understand the situation, what they were saying. He probably thought they were trying to throw him off the train and thought, no, I've got a right to be here. See, what this guy needed was a sign. He needed some way to assure him that these people were for him. And so what he did was he, he just got out his phone. He called a relative, someone who could speak English, and held it out to the station manager. And the station manager waited patiently. The train was not going anywhere. I spoke to that relative, explaining the situation. 
I've got to get him off this train, and I will guarantee I will get him on the right train. I will personally take him there. And as soon as this was relayed to him, he happily stood off and he followed this lady off the train. She's a lovely station manager. She wanted what was best for this guy, and she was prepared to wait to do what was necessary. She didn't get het up or anything. She waited. She took that phone call. She explained the situation. She wanted this guy to know that she was for him, that she was there to help him. God seeks to do the same with Ahaz here. What sign do you need? What do you need for me to assure you that I am for you, that I want to do so much good to you? Verse 11, ask the Lord your God for a sign, whether in the deepest depths or in the highest heights. God is saying, I am willing to move heaven and earth in order to show you that I am God and that I want you so that I can do so much good to you. And God here is speaking to Ahaz. Ahaz was not a good king. Read 2 Kings 16. This is a guy who engaged in child sacrifice. And these words that God is speaking to Ahaz is not prompted by anything that's desirable in Ahaz. This comes from the depth, the intensity of God's heart. Of saying to this king, I will move heaven and earth to prove to you that I am God and I want you. I want you to follow me so that I can do so much good to you. But we're told in verse 12, Ahaz said, I will not ask. I will not put the Lord God to the test. That sounds so godly, doesn't it? And yet it's just pious twaddle. You see, Ahaz already had a plan. He'd already come up with a solution. And we see that explicitly in 2 Kings 16. His solution was to strip the Lord's temple of its gold and of its silver in order to secure the help of Assyria. It's a bit like if the persecuted church was facing threats from Islamic State and they said, we're going to call on North Korea. We're going to submit ourselves to North Korea to help us. And so Isaiah said, verse 13, Hear now, you house of David. Is it, enough, is it not enough for you to try the patience of humans? Will you try the patience of my God also? And notice the rebuke here. It doesn't come simply to Ahaz, but to the house of David. Because for hundreds of years, since the time of Solomon, the house of David, that the people of Judah have been turning away from the Lord. They've been turning to wicked and to idolatrous powers. And yes, at times there's been some good kings, but generally we've got a downward trajectory of people turning away from the Lord. And God has been patient with his people from generation after generation. But notice now the words of Isaiah in verse 13. Will you try the patience of my God? No longer your God, Ahaz, my God. There's now a distance. This moment marks the beginning of the end for the reign of Ahaz. 
and for the reign of the Davidic dynasty. No longer your God. It's my God. This is the beginning of the end. And yet it isn't the end. It won't be the end because God is committed to do good. And the Lord declares that he himself will give a sign. Remember, these aren't words that are just spoken to Ahaz. This is a message now to the house of David, to the kingly Davidic dynasty. Verse 14, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. He will be eating curds and honey when he knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right. For before the boy knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right, the land of the two kings you dread will be laid to waste. Now much ink has been spilled on these verses. There's not time this morning to go through all the details and all the debates. If you have any questions, come and speak to me later. But at first glance, when we read this, it seems somewhat vague. And I think intentionally so. It sounds like this could be a promise of imminent deliverance, and that may have been how A has heard it. Okay, I've had a bit of a slap on the wrist, but you know what? This is going to work out. The land that I fear, that's going to be a wasteland. It's all going to turn out okay. God will bless my plans ultimately. But then the tsunami of verse 17 hits. The Lord will bring on you and on your people, and on the house of your father, a time unlike any since Ephraim broke away from Judah. He will bring the king of Assyria. So centuries before, this united kingdom of Israel, 12 tribes, uh, was split. Uh, On account of Solomon's wickedness, turning away from the Lord, engaging in pagan worship, and leading the people astray. And so the kingdom was split, the 12 tribes. You had 10 in the north that becomes known as Ephraim. And then you have two in the south, Judah and Benjamin, becomes known as, uh, as the people of Judah. And this is what has been referred to here, that time when Ephraim broke away from Judah. See, this was a time where the kingdom of David suddenly decreased in its power and its influence. You had 10 twelfths in the north, left over with, with only two-twelfths or, or one-sixth of the power that was once there. But now, from this time on, a greater blow is about to come. The Lord declares, he will bring the king of Assyria. And from this point on, Judah basically loses all independence. From this point on, the kings of Judah will find themselves subject to world empire after world empire after world empire. And it begins with Assyria. So in the past, the house of David shrunk. Now it's about to become enslaved. Ahaz had committed the kingdom into the hands of Assyria, and into the hands of Assyria, the kingdom would fall. The arms you run to are the arms that will hold you. Where do you run in times of trial, 
and adversity and distress? Do you run to the loving embrace of our Heavenly Father or to the enslaving grip of an idolatrous power? And wherever you may have run in the past, there is hope for today. There is hope that we will see in this passage. It's coming. We're not there yet. But it's coming. Ahaz committed the kingdom into the hands of Assyria and into the hands of Assyria the kingdom would fall, the result of which would be suffering, would be shame, would be scarcity. Look ahead to verse 20. In that day, the Lord will use a razor hired from beyond the Euphrates, the king of Assyria, to shave your heads and private parts and to cut off your beards also. In that day, a person will keep alive a young cow and two goats. And because of the abundance of the milk they give, there will be curds to eat. All who remain in the land will eat curds and honey. Now, curds and honey might be considered a luxurious food. It certainly was at that time. But it was also a food for times of despair. Eating curds and honey is probably as vague as saying the freezer is full. There could be a whole myriad of reasons why the freezer is full. The freezer might be full because there is so much abundance that you're having to freeze everything to store it. But of course, the freezer could be full because there's a lack of any fresh produce. If you have a look to uh, verse 23 and following, see, we see there that curds and honey are eaten because there are desperate times. The population has been depleted. The land is not cultivated. And so people are having to live off wild food. Now food that comes from the bees, comes from the cows, that comes from the goats. Animals are going to populate the land. This is the type of food that people are having to live off. There's going to be an abundance of milk, so much milk you're going to have to curdle it. Why? Because there are so few people. The reason the freezer is full is because there's no one there to eat it. The population is massively depleted. There will only be a remnant. And in a nation that once, a few hundred years ago, would have spoken of people who were as numerous as the sand on the seashore, as the stars in the sky, only a handful will be left. And that promise that we've been considering in the mornings, the promise that God made to Abraham. Your descendants will be as numerous as the sand on the seashore, as the stars in the sky. It seems to have come to an end. It was fulfilled, but for a short period of time. And yet now, because of the rebellion of David's house, culminating in this rebellion of Ahaz, Ahaz, well, they've blown it. The promise has been lost. Instead of abundance and blessing, there's going to be suffering and shame and scarcity. But just remember back to last week. And I'll recap last week, or if you weren't here last week, several weeks back when we were in Genesis 15, when God made that promise to Abraham, when he made that covenant, when those animals were divided in two, 
who walked through. It was the Lord and the Lord alone who walked through. He would guarantee that his covenant promise would be fulfilled no matter what, even if the curse had to fall on him. Now Ahaz refused a sign because he'd already made up his mind. He'd thrown in his lot with Assyria, but the Lord, the Lord will give a sign. He will give a sign to demonstrate his unfailing commitment to do good. Verse 14, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign, O house of David. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. He will be eating curds and honey when he knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right. Rejecting the wrong, choosing the right. That could refer to coming to the age of accountability where a child is old enough to discern between what is right and wrong. The language is also used of kings ruling justly in the Bible. I think this is where this passage is going. A king who will rule justly. That into the rebellious kingdom, God will raise up a king who reigns with justice and who reigns with wisdom. And this promise here points forward to Isaiah 9. And that promise in Isaiah 9, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given. The government will be on his shoulders. But before that time, before that time that the Emmanuel child rules, there's going to be this period of suffering, of shame, of scarcity, as we've seen in the verses that follow. Just notice here in verse 15, the diet of the Emmanuel child. What are they going to be eating? Curds and honey. We've already seen, we've already considered. That is a diet in this context that refers to a period of deprivation. The Emmanuel child is not going to come after a time of suffering and shame and scarcity. The Emmanuel child is going to come into it. They're going to be born in the midst of it. And their reign is going to begin, not after it, but in the midst of it. He will be eating curds and honey. He will be in that period of suffering, of shame, of scarcity, when he knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right. When that rule, when that reign begins. The Emmanuel child. Emmanuel, which means God with us. This is a sign that God gives to the house of David. And he declares that he will be with his people. He will meet his people in the midst of that suffering and in that shame and in that scarcity. In the consequences of their sin, he will meet his people. He will come. He will run into the arms of those idolatrous powers in order to wrestle his people free. To experience his rule and his reign. And here, God declares, even in your sin, even in your repeated rebellion against me, I am still God, and I still want you, that I may do so much 
good to you? Do you know how deeply you are loved? Now, as we come to Christmas, know that God has literally moved heaven and earth in order to give you that sign to demonstrate his love and his commitment to you. He has literally moved heaven and earth. Jesus Christ, fully God and fully man, the one in whom heaven and earth come together, the Emmanuel child, God with us. And we know Jesus wasn't born in a palace. He wasn't born in front of a throne because there was no throne. There was no throne for the king of Judah because since the days of Ahaz, the kingdom of Judah has been subject to world empire after world empire after world empire. When Jesus was born, born under the rule and the reign, the terror of the Roman Empire. And when Jesus came, he didn't come after that period of suffering and shame and scarcity. He was born into it. Jesus entered into our world of suffering and pain, brought about by the rebellion and sin. In order that, that this promise here might be fulfilled. In order that the people of God might know and might experience the love and the reign of God. Do you know how much you are loved? And so, in your times of affliction, in your times of trial, where are you going to run? Run into the arms of our, our loving Heavenly Father, into His embrace? Or will you let that fear cause you to run into the ensnaring grip of those idolatrous powers? And even if you found yourself, even if you find yourself ensnared in that vice-like grip, Know that Jesus has run into the arms of idolatrous powers in order to wrestle you free. In order that you may know, that you may be assured of the revelation of God's heart that still declares, I am still God and I still want you, that I may do so much good to you. Let's pray. Father, your love for us is not something that we can fathom. Lord, try as we might, Lord, we, we could not comprehend it. Not even with a clear vision, and yet that we have been blinded by sin and by lies time and time again. Father, would you help us to see, Lord, by your Spirit, to, to see the sign of Emmanuel. Lord, to see your power and your love towards us. Lord, your heart's longing. Lord, that we would know that the depth and the breadth and the height, Lord, of your love that is beyond all comprehension. 
or as we struggle to comprehend it, or that we may immerse ourselves in it. Father, show us now, show us in these coming days, or those areas where we've, we've failed to trust you, because we fail to see you for the God for who you are. Lord, and will you turn our hearts, turn our hearts afresh to you? Lord, as threats, as challenges perhaps loom large in our lives, Lord, may the vision of your love as revealed in Jesus Christ, our Emmanuel, God, with us, just fill and flood our vision. Lord, and put all things in their right and proper place, we pray. Amen.